Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering escapes to the beautiful San Juan Islands this spring. Convenient daily 45-minute flights to San Juan Island, Orcas, and Lopez Islands from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Why did our Democratic state legislators not pass a limit on how much landlords can increase rent in a year? A, they think it's unfair to landlords. B, they think it'll end up raising rents in the long term. C, they're corporate stooges. I may not have thought of everything. Will you tell me in a few minutes? Can we get to that? See you week yes. out. Okay, yeah. thanks. Oh, I have a panel here, uh, an excellent and stellar panel. We have staff writer at The Stranger, Vivian McCall. Welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. Good to see you again. Seattle Channel host and producer Brian Callanan. Hiya, Brian. Hey, Bill. Political and public affairs consultant and one-third of the Seattle Nice podcast, Sandeep Kashik. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, first of all... Um, Let's talk about what happened at City Hall. You know, every week we present a new chapter in the book of the new Seattle City Council. Mm. So this is Chapter 9. How will this city council handle protest? Protesters came to City Hall this week demanding support for hundreds of asylum seekers who've been sheltering at a Tukwila church and across South King County. This is a bit of what it sounded like in uh, Seattle City Hall. Security, would you please clear the room? Now, last year's city council would have been more receptive, I think it's fair to say. This city council strictly enforced its 20-minute limit on public comment. Protesters chanted and yelled and didn't leave. The council president essentially told demonstrators they're phonies. Security cleared the chamber. Council went into recess several times. Some protesters banged on the windows from the outside. Council member Kathy Moore didn't just say she felt threatened. She said she was threatened. It's more than loud. It is a it is a physical threat to the safety of each of us on this council. And it is a physical it is a threat to the operation of our civic institution. And I want the record to be clear that I physically feel threatened. Police made six arrests. Unclear whether they're going to be uh, actual charges, right? I'm, and I, I'm used to protesters getting themselves arrested to draw attention to a cause. But Vivian, do you think this is a change in Seattle government that has real effects on people? Well, I certainly think that it has real effects on people, certainly the six people who ended up being arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You know, I think there's been a lot of discussion about whether this is a return to decorum or order in city council. But I frankly am not as concerned with that when people didn't really have the opportunity to speak their mind. There was this limit on public comment that was enforced, which is a little odd because usually if there are enough people to speak, that public comment session would be extended. And if people are not allowed to speak through the proper channels, how are they supposed to speak to city council, even if that topic would be considered off topic for what they were going to talk about that day. These are people with serious concerns about what is going to happen to their lives. Yeah. And, and it was a, I think it was a situation, too, where these were people who were not refugees and asylum seekers. It's important to point that out. These are people who were protesting, I guess, on their behalf. You could look at it that way. This sure. is a stop the sweeps group. Uh, and I guess I was just looking at it with that whole idea of, OK, we're shutting this down. We're going to shut down this public comment right there. It, it, it wasn't 
efficacious. I mean, at the end of the day, the whole idea of, okay, we're going to shut this down. I think in some ways, the way I saw it, it really threw more gas on the fire. It really led these protesters to, okay, you're going to quiet mm-hmm. our voices. We're going to be even louder. And that was the part that, that concerned me about it. Yeah. And if people were allowed to speak, it would have not taken as long. Uh, it wouldn't have been as loud or raucous. I, I, I think that it could have been avoided. Yeah, I I don't think I, I, I agree with the takes I've been hearing so far. I mean, my understanding, and I talked to several of the council members after the, you know, in, the, in subsequent days to kind of get their takes on what they thought happened in the chambers in that room and obviously watched it. But uh, first of all, I think uh, almost everybody who signed up to speak got a chance to speak. There were maybe one or two people that were signed up that, that, that after the 20-minute limit ran out didn't get to get, you know, didn't get an opportunity for their minute of, of testimony. But I certainly thought the message that these protesters, Brian, that you that that you referenced uh, was made. And I actually think their message was at least as much about cutting funding for the Seattle police and particularly the, the controversial shots water program as it was about the migrants. I think that's the point that uh, Council President Nelson was was making when and she l- thought, listeners yeah, will yeah. tell you more about the, sh- yeah. the gunshot location shot spider in a, in a moment but go ahead. that's right it, you know it's a it's a controversial technology that uh that the, the city uh, council and the mayor funded in the previous budget cycle and that is sort of a a, a significant issue on the left right uh that that has concerns about it in the in the city but um and look uh i think that those protesters were there in part to shut down the normal operations of city council because they had a point to make, right? And the council president called for a recess, kind of calmed things down. They went away for five minutes, come back, shouted them down again, called another recess. I mean, we went through kind of three or four recesses, right, where they couldn't actually conduct the, the functions of government before there was a request to clear the room. And then when some people refused to leave the room, that's when the police were called. I hear what you're saying, but I worry about what happens at the next council meeting. And it's mainly because of the way the council president, Nelson, and some of the other council members, council member Saka said it at closer to the end of the meeting, this is divisive rhetoric. We're not going to have this anymore. So is it in the purview of the city council to say, okay, that rhetoric's divisive, that's not? It just feels like there's an inherent judgment within that that doesn't really seem to speak to a democratic process. I, I, what do you think about that? Well, well, hey, let, let me let's let's let listeners yeah. hear a bit of what Council President Sarah Nelson had to say. She on, she was on KUOW's sound side and she accused the crowd of being opportunistic. We have protesters who I believe, based on their social media postings and invites and language, have um, basically commandeered this human crisis for their own political ends. Why do I think that? Because they came to Seattle where um, they oppose certain policies that the city of Seattle has implemented, even though these are are folks that have been out um, at a church in Tukwila, are currently at a hotel in Kent. Vivian, what did you think of that claim? Well, I really don't believe that the protesters are being opportunistic. I think they are speaking on behalf of these people. And I don't know if that's really her judgment to make, whether or not people should be allowed to speak, whether or not their point of view is opportunistic or not. Why should that matter? And in fact, one more bit of audio here. It it wasn't just people protesting other things. Uh, Again, KUOW's Soundside spoke with one of the people who got arrested, Rosario Lopez 
says she's undocumented and she's working with Super Familia, a mutual aid group led by undocumented and unaccompanied youth. You know, seeing the children cry because they don't want to go back to the tents, it breaks your heart. And if it doesn't make you angry, if it doesn't make you cry, if it doesn't make you want to, I don't know, like something about it, then where is your heart? What is your humanity? So this question of, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my my reaction. I'm curious what, what you think, maybe especially you, Sandeep. Mm-hmm. But the the council has all the power in this situation to listen to people, to consider, to say no thank you, to cut off debate after 20 minutes, to call the police. Um, why? And uh, to to say that they're exploiting or being opportunistic, they may be consciously or unconsciously capitalizing on one situation to get attention for a cause they believe in. They have every right to say, you know what, um, uh, help these asylum seekers and stop the sweeps. I mean, what, why is it the council, why is it city councilors job to do anything but listen and then make policy without calling them exploitative. I didn't understand that. Well, I, I, I think that council members have a right to, uh, you know, opine about the, the issues that are presented to them. They have and, a right, but and, and, should they? Well, I think in this case, they should. I think Council President Nelson is largely correct about this. These are, a, a, it's a group of radical activists, mostly white. The the clip you, you just provided was the one arrested protester who was not white. The other protesters were all white people, right? Um, when those protesters were arrested, the migrants had already left the, 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 the group of migrants that had come there had already left the chambers. They were not the ones that were causing the, the disruptions or yelling well, whether, at the council Whether they were white or, or not, I still don't know why it was a counselor's role to 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 judge to read their to publicly read their minds and find them exploitative even if even if they I don't know these protesters they they may be I don't know what's in their minds either but what's why is that the point well they have an agenda that they're very clearly expressing right which is you know I I, I mean it's not a secret that those protesters were kind of you know abolitionists defund the 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 police mm-hmm. folks and they they're they're sort of called to come out to the city council which is i think what council president nelson was reacting to was what sort of was you know seemed less about the migrants and more about you know their their sort of you know left anti-cop political agenda and she's like well wait a minute you think the migrants actually know what the hell shot spotter is or that it has anything to do with the the real situation that's unwinding in front of our eyes in tuckwilla i you know anybody else want to jump into this no i I, that's her opinion i I, I hear what you're saying too i I just i just i worry about that uh, that point that you made bill it's like okay this is something that this is a a political maneuver that i don't agree with so i'm going to shut you down and and that's the part of it where i'm like well they do have a 20 minute limit but but that's they never ever ever use that 20 minute limit they they haven't done it more than a, but, I can't remember the last time they did it. But that can't be the thing to call them on the carpet for, can it? Why? Why don't? Why did the old council even have a twenty? Why have a limit at all? I, I suppose. I mean, it's it, and it's supposed your testimony, public testimony, is supposed to be on topic on the agenda of of. And how uh, often is it? Well, how often? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, have you been to any city council yeah, meeting yeah, in America? Well, right, right. But I, I, I will tell you from from the perspective of several of the council members I spoke with, right when there was the initial recess and they started up again. What they were trying to do was honor a trailblazing African-American legislator whose family was there with his widow, his two daughters, another family member. Mm -hmm. And the protesters kept shouting it down, not letting them, you know, do this proclamation honoring um, 
uh, uh, Senator Fleming. And I happen to know about Senator Fleming because I used to work for Ron Sims, uh, himself mm-hmm. a former trailblazing African-American King County executive who got his start as a, a legislative aide for – you know, as he always called him, Senator Fleming, and these right. reverential Tarantons. But is that so, what this turns on? The fact that the, that also happened to be going on. What What if it hadn't? Well, what if I, that hadn't I, I, been I mean, I guess the question is, Bill, where's the line? That's right? the question. Right? Exactly. I, where's the line? And, and who gets to draw <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, right? Yeah. And who gets to draw it? Yeah. <laughs> any th- Any more thoughts? I think we... maybe it would have been better if everybody just was able to speak. So no, I limit. think we you would abolish the limit on public testimony. I don't know if I would abolish it, but ignore it. I'm not saying. I'm just saying shouldn't. What if everybody there was able to speak? Well, okay, well, what if the other two people that didn't get to speak got a chance to speak, and then they continued to shout down the proceeding? Well, well I guess we'll we can't. Know. We'll never know. Yeah. 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 Well, then, then there's the question of what's going to happen at the next meeting and the next meeting. I mean, yeah. to be told uh, that you that, that we, we're, we are now enforcing a limit that didn't used to be enforced and you're exploitative— um, I don't know if this is going to mean no more protest uh, and, and glass banging at City Hall. I don't know. Well, glass bang. I, I mean, so after the, the room was cleared, the chambers were cleared, the, the people – it wasn't like people like knocking on the glass. No. I think what council members were saying was it really felt like the glass – they were hammering on she it. It was going to break. Mm-hmm. And That's how it, she felt. Yep. It didn't it break. break. It no. didn't. She felt it didn't, that way. And, and look, you know, when, when council member Moore sort of said, I feel threatened or, or I'm – you know, this is threatening and these people outside should be arrested, what you saw was council president Nelson, council member Rivera say, well, no, you know – Maybe that's going too far with 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 these folks, and sort of sort of calm the temperatures down. And then security asked those people to stop banging on the windows, and they stopped, and they weren't arrested, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think there is a place for protest. But I will also say, what was going on in that room as the conduct of government was trying to happen was what we call on free speech terms a heckler's veto, right? Mm-hmm. And that is not free speech or democracy in action when you shout down people you disagree with because you don't want to let them have a chance to you know have their say that's anti-free speech and that's what i think was happening there in that room and ultimately led to what what uh what resulted but in cutting it off are you inviting more shouting in the meetings in the future that that would well, be my well, concern we'll, we'll see. see you know we'll see. I, I mean we'll see what happens in the future but maybe the fact that there's some consequence i i do think i will say this too there has been in the last few years a strain of very angry toxic um, very personal attack kind of behavior that's run through Seattle politics. I mean, I think there's a reason that five of the mm-hmm. city council members on the previous council didn't run for re-election to the city council. Right. Part of it was their sort of political calculus, but a lot of it was they lived through a, a, a few years where they were subjected to levels, and, and this is both on the left and the and the the, okay. the middle. Whether you're Teresa Mosqueda or Deborah sure. Juarez, they got. You know, subjected to the to levels of abuse. Oh, death threats, uh, the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, death threats and stuff to to the point that uh, it it's really toxic and destructive. And 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 we so, have other things to yeah, cover. Yeah. Uh, I just I've haven't I haven't as much. We, did we do we feel we covered it? Yeah, I think okay. we covered it. I, I yeah, I mean we're Great still topic. talking about whether <laughs> it was angry and personal. Uh, the council's actions as well. A lot of people, the protesters, the left, the right. Can we be? We don't have to be angry and toxic, though, do we? We'll see, <laughs> we'll see what we can we do. We can be happy. Right, right, we can right, be happy. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, just to to let the listener know about this, the update on we've talked about uh, this gunshot location 
um, issue before the public testimony ended this week. Right. This is a system of surveillance microphones and cameras that would be placed on Aurora Avenue, 3rd Avenue downtown, and Belltown. They pick up a noise. The company listens. If it might be a gunshot, they tell police. Um, you Would it work well or not? Would it be a waste of time and money? I've heard mixed things. Vivian, you lived in Chicago where you said uh, right. th- that ShotSpotter sucks. ShotSpot, <laughs> I did write that in an email. And I'll say it on the I record. I think uh, you, don't, you have not outed okay. me. I don't think ShotSpotter is too great. And I don't think studies would show that ShotSpotter is too great. And there are a few reasons for that. One is that ShotSpotter will often be selectively placed in neighborhoods that are already subject to over-policing. And then because it is a defective technology that really doesn't work, uh, police will be dispatched to this neighborhood, these neighborhoods over and over and over again for things that are not gunshots. For example, there was a study that found 40,000 dead-end police deployments were happened in Chicago over 21 months, which is quite a lot. And it's just sending more officers to those same neighborhoods that have already been identified as potential areas for gun violence. That is not a good use of money. It's not a good use of time. Uh, It's not good for the neighborhoods. Um, I understand why people think, hey, a technology that could alert police to the sound of a gunshot and potentially save lives, sure, maybe that sounds like a good thing. If it worked, (laughs) that would be pretty great, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people also have privacy concerns. But if we're having things listening to us all over the place, I know that this isn't something that you are too concerned about. But um, turning to sun, yeah, yeah. 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 But okay, what, but I I do think that it is a legitimate concern. We live in a culture that uh, increasingly uh, keeps an eye on us, and I I think people are fine to have an issue with that, especially if it doesn't work. Yeah, that's that's fair. Can, can you separate the issues though? Meaning, you know, that surveillance issue, I, I get it, and I understand what the ACLU is talking about there for sure. But I think there is another piece of this. It's like, what is going to make our streets safer? And I I hear what you're saying in terms of making this investment. There's a reason that Chicago. Chicago said, we don't want this. They just dumped their $9 million system a little while ago. I mean, yes. say, they said it didn't work. And so I think that's what Seattle is grasping at here. By the Can way, we find several, something that several cities agree and have dropped it. Denver just renewed its five-year contract. Okay. Other cities like it. But as you say, there are issues. There are different reasons why a city might yeah. uh, keep it right. or drop it. And this one's paired with some license plate reading technology as yeah. well. Like, like any uh, – look, I, I should preface this by saying I – have no personal like sort of brief for or against shot spotter. I have no idea whether it's going to work in the Seattle context. It's obviously something that just got funded in the last council cycle and after a lot, after years of debate about it. I, I know that there are questions about its efficacy, but I think like probably all of these sorts of technologies, a lot is going to depend on how it actually gets used right at the granular level. How does it get integrated in the other systems, crime fighting systems that SVD is deploying on the ground and sort of how do they make, you know, and, and if they use it incorrectly, it may not provide any kind of benefit. But on the flip side of this, I just, I guess, you know, I, I think some of the left's sort of concerns that this is somehow, some kind of, you know, the, the beginnings of some sort of, you know, totalitarian surveillance state or, you know. That oh, this not is, the beginning. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. Right. Well, I think that stuff is kind of overblown. It's sort of a, you know, it's a, it's a gunshot detection technology. It may suck. It may not. I don't know. You know, like, the, you know, they're going to try it. But I just don't really see, uh, you know. It's a trust uh, issue. Uh, 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 where, where they want to deploy it on Aurora Avenue, there's like a lot of people getting shot up there. Like, right. Like, <laughs> but the thing is that if, if it is not really possible to effectively listen for gunshots in the first place, then why deploy the technology? So if the technology were better. Right. I, I yeah. don't. If, 
Well, if the technology were better, I'm not so sure. I, I'm <laughs> all I'm saying. I don't even think we have to get to that point mm-hmm. because the technology doesn't seem to work. There are reasons that cities have dropped them in the past, and it okay. is a sizable investment. And, all right. And, see, okay, yes. please. No, I was does just going to say it's not a. a I, I think it does cover it, Bill. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, so much to say I'm, about this. One. I am the host and timekeeper. <laughs> true story. I just true story. Get to everything uh, before we take a break. Something else that uh, some of these city hall protesters were opposing was the any. Um, idea of repealing a minimum wage for gig workers. So to fill you in, the last city council said delivery companies, DoorDash, Instacart, Uber Eats, had to pay gig workers a minimum wage, even though they're not they're not out, you know, they're not paid hourly. Um, So these companies added a five dollar delivery charge that they said is to cover that rising wage cost. After that charge, orders dropped. People didn't order as much. That hurts drivers as well. Now these companies are asking the new city council to reverse the minimum wage. Labor advocates say, whoa, the companies didn't have to add an extra fee. They were just retaliating. Uh, On the other hand, companies get to retaliate. Even if it's mean, it, it could be strategic. What do you think the new city council is going to do? I, I think they're going to wait for a little bit on this one. I, at least I hope so. I would like to see some more data come in. And I think that's the biggest challenge of this whole thing. These companies don't share their data. They're really not putting out right. a lot of information, DoorDash, et cetera, about, mm-hmm. okay, here's how much money's coming in, et cetera. And so when you're talking about that and basing this pretty big decision that affects the last count in 2022 was something along the lines of 40,000 gig workers that are in the city of Seattle. This is a big population, and they were really pushing for this minimum wage when it was coming across, and also some of the other protections, too, like not getting kicked off the app, et cetera. So Mm -hmm. there were some pretty important uh, uh, protections put in here. So I'm hoping that the council at least takes a breath on this and hears from a few more people, including Working Washington, because I I think this was a a, a pretty uh, pretty big measure to put in place that protected a lot of different workers here. I will say also, just looking back at the $15 per hour minimum wage debate that we had several years ago, that didn't reduce Seattle to ashes. You know, we were able to get through that. And I, I, I just I, I would be I would be concerned uh, if it were OK, new council. Let's let's flip it up. Let's change it all here. And I think that that there is some opportunity, uh, opportunistic people uh, working with some of these different companies that are really pushing for this new council. Uh, we're, to make ba- some changes. we're back to being opportunistic. I just thought I'd throw it in there. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else? I, I would just say that I, I really largely agree with what you're saying. I think we, if we don't have all of the information and the data, it is very easy for the companies to say, well, hey, we've had to add this $5 fee. It's different for the different companies, mm-hmm. but we've had to add this fee to, to stay afloat, you know, because there are really important worker protections. Yeah. And I can say, have you ever done any gig work before? Nope. I have. Nope. It's very hard. It's really hard to make it. And I think those protections are, are Really important. So, look. I, first of all, I should preface this by saying I, I I'm directly involved in this issue as a consultant for DoorDash. So, so uh, your audience should take this um, uh, with a grain of salt, I guess, or or at least factor that in. But I will say this: um, the companies warned the previous city council that this impact was exactly what was going to happen if they adopted the the law that they ended up adopting, which is that they said this law was sold to saying. We want to make sure gig workers get paid Seattle's minimum wage, which is nineteen ninety seven an hour at least. Yeah, uh, you at know least. that has to be the floor. Yeah. But what they actually did was they set a, a, an actual total compensation minimum wage for gig workers at something in the neighborhood of thirty dollars an hour. It's per, about, they, there's a there's a there's a minimum per minute per mile, mile. right? And all yeah. those numbers got padded in ways that sort of 
jack the rate up to up, you know, when you add in tips, my excessive mileage and all of that stuff. We said to them, look, you're setting a minimum wage that's, that's pushing 30 bucks an hour. And what do you think is going to happen if tomorrow the Seattle City Council announced the $20 minimum wage is now $30 starting today? Guess what would happen to the price of a Big Mac, right? You know, it's going to create these, you know, otherwise we could raise a minimum wage of $50 tomorrow, right? And poverty is solved, right? You know, the, everything's great. It doesn't work that way. There, there, are, there are economic consequences for getting the formula wrong. And that's what happened here. And now we have restaurants complaining. Um, the reason that there may be some some urgency around revisiting this is council members are getting diluted, not because of the companies, but because restaurants are complaining to them, saying their orders have gone down, and because a bunch of drivers are complaining, saying their their earnings have actually gone down because they're waiting way longer to get get deliveries, right? And so okay. there's a disruption in the market that probably is going to get revisited, and and you know we'll see where it goes. There's some conversation i have a conversation later today with working washington to talk about this and we'll see how those conversations evolve but uh um okay uh, yeah we'll see where it goes i mean the company also the companies also could decide you know what adding this delivery fee and making orders drop that's not that's hurting us too if it doesn't work if the if it's it could be a gamble that maybe this the new city council agrees with brian callanan and we, we don't know right one Fair? of the companies ship pulled out of the seattle yeah. market because they said that the they couldn't make the economics of it work at yep. that level right that's right. Think, the other companies have said they've had to increase the cost of delivery to pay that that or to, to make that earnings formula work. But okay. It, yeah. We, we got to take that's yeah. that's the uh, update on uh, gig workers and minimum wage. Uh, we'll see where it goes with the new city council. We're going to take a break and go to Olympia, Washington, and see what they did and did not do when we return on Week in Review. Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering escapes to the beautiful San Juan Islands this spring. Convenient daily 45-minute flights to San Juan Island, Orcas, and Lopez Islands from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at paxi.org. You're listening to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, talking about the week gone by with Seattle Channel's Brian Callanan, political and public affairs consultant Sandeep Kaushik, and The Strangers' Vivian McCall. How could we make rent not more affordable but less unaffordable? We, we could limit how much landlords can raise rents. That's what the state legislature was considering. Even the moderate Seattle Times endorsed the idea. Democrats are in the majority. I thought they were going to pass it. Uh, why aren't they? Sandeep, you want to start? Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not, it doesn't look like it's going anywhere in Olympia. It doesn't look like it's going anywhere, right? It didn't make the, 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 the bill in the House, didn't make the cutoff. The Senate bill was already dead. Um, uh, you know, I think it's not going anywhere because there are at least some Democratic legislators who looked at this and said, you know, this is going to have, uh, this isn't going to work, right? It's going to have negative unintended consequences. And look, I, I will say again, this is sort of basic kind of textbook econ 101, right? That um, rent control and rent stabilization ideas have been um, deployed in a, any number of places in the 70s and, and, and 80s. I lived in New York City in a rent stabilized apartment when I lived there back in 1989, 1990. Um, and 
All, and, and the results of those experiments were largely a failure, right? What happened was the housing supply of apartments went down and the rents rose faster in those localities than they would have otherwise, right? So I think most economists will tell you, again, this is textbook. It's not going it, it, to deli- – the people who get in now and get the rent stable, they will benefit, but everybody who comes after is going to end up paying more. Okay. I want to hear from other folks. I want to point out that it's really hard to test Econ 101 theories in the real world, you know, the trickle-down theory. There's lots of theories that are theories, and it's really hard to say as economics change. And uh, Vivian, you want right. to pick up? And I just want to say that – you know, we don't want to conflate rent stabilization and rent control. Obviously, they're different things. And actually, there is no empirical study that exists that connects rent control to a reduction in new construction. Um, it is something that people say is kind of a given fact or like it's economics 101. Uh, a lot of people cite this one Stanford study. But, you know, landlords, landlords also took advantage of loopholes that allowed them to move into their own properties, to demolish them or construct condos that were exempt from rent control. You know, it there there is a, a lot that we can't say for sure about how these doesn't policies are. And I, and I hear – false. Right, right. And I hear a lot. And I'm not saying that's what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, but – I, yeah. I think there are two places where I, where I think Vivian and I will, will align to some extent on this, which is – I, I do think most rent control or rent stabilization, you know, models that have been adopted in, in the past, typically they exempt new construction, right, for right. because of this concern that it's going to de- depress the Which now, this one did now, in yeah, Olympia. Right, last, which is what it is. But, but I will tell yeah. you, last year, Shama Sawant, you know, there was a big debate about rent control in the city of Seattle mm-hmm. and her proposal. She did not exempt new construction deliber- very deliberately, yeah. right? Now, that failed, but the but the city of St. Paul – just a year or two ago, passed a version of very much very similar to what what Councilmember Sawant was articulating here. They saw a huge reduction in new construction, like and within months, the city council there had to scramble and kind of kind of redo their their law because okay, but, they were. But that was not proposed in Olympia. That was not yeah. proposed in Olympia. Right. But the other place I will I will agree with, I do think there is a real issue, um, a very specific issue around um, displacement, particularly in cities like Seattle, and where you have kind of older uh, buildings, older stock of buildings, they're market rate, but they're kind of organically below Mm -hmm. the median because they're kind of down there. Yeah, yeah, I have friends who live in those buildings on First Hill or whatever, and they typically have a mom and pop owner, and then a, a, a big developer comes in and says, man, I'll give you $10 million for this building, sign on the dotted line. They spruce up the building, renovate it, Jack the rent 25, 30, 40, 50%. Everybody who lives there can no longer afford it. They all get displaced. Yeah. Right. It's a huge driver, disproportionate driver. So I do think a targeted intervention on capping rents that addresses that problem, there's a. Like there's 15% a, instead that, of 7 Yeah, that, which is, which is what the Senate proposal right, yes. was amended to. Right? And that, and and that was, that was the big there's question. There's an argument for that. And that's, that's the big question mark I had. I felt like that 15% was a pretty decent middle ground. And and remember what we're talking about here, this is for an existing tenant. Okay, that existing tenant, that can go up 15% next year and year after that. But if a new tenant comes in, that landlord can raise that rate above 15% in terms of raising rents. And so I I don't know. I felt like there was a lot of confusion around this. I know when Senator Annette Cleveland pushed back on this, she seemed to think that 
uh, landlords would somehow be required to raise rents 15 percent every year, which which is out there. I didn't get what was happening on that one. So this this one, I know it's going to come back. I know that uh, Senator, excuse me, Representative Alvarado from the 34th here in Seattle is going to be pushing for this again. Uh, Nicole Macri as well. Next year. Yeah, next year. Mm -hmm. But but I just I I really hope there's some more learning on this because there's a lot more nuance to it. And I hear what you're saying, Vivian. This is not necessarily this isn't rent control. This is something different. And there has to be a middle ground. I have one more question. May I? Because I'm I'm the timekeeper. If I know that because we haven't discussed what's fair to landlords, Mm. because some lawmakers will just say they're these landlord. This is their property and they're trying to charge what they want to charge. We don't say this is what you can charge if you prepare a tax return or whatever. What if that's if that's a concern, then why doesn't the government just give more vouchers rather than uh, running their policy through the landlords, whether you think it's even fair or not to landlords, Vivian? I'm not really quite sure. You know, I I, I just think that the, the whole discussion does end up being more about landlords and not as much about renters. And that's the thing that bothers me, because if you talk to so many renters, you know, 7%, that's still something really significant for them. People are struggling to make ends meet as it is. And I think that this policy, you know, capping at something that's really just kind of double inflation already, that adds just a modicum of financial stability for those renters, which is really what is needed. And I think it is um, it is really disappointing that we just don't seem to be able to get something over the finish line. Yep. Yeah, That is the other side of the ledger. Of, yes, it's going to cost somebody. And meanwhile, maybe somebody doesn't have to pull their kid out of school because they can't afford right. the, their price. Uh, and Bill, I don't know that the, that the city of Seattle or the state needs to do do vouchers or whatever, but I, there is a lot of things that government does that increases the cost of producing multifamily housing, right? Uh, burdensome regulations. Permitting. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Perm- zoning. Yeah, yeah. It, it, the city of Seattle has enormous red tape that that really makes it expensive to build. We should be fixing some of that stuff because, again, it's a supply-demand question. The reason rents are rising and are becoming unaffordable is because demand is outstripping supply. Well, what's the best answer? We got to build a lot more housing in the city of Seattle so or, or, or across the state. And there are things we can do you know, directly to make that make that more likely, and okay. and and yet, but we that don't still do can, that. Both, those both of those things could happen could. theoretically. Well, yeah. like, the market forces just have not produced that that affordable housing that we need, and I think that's why you'll see some more of that government intervention. I mean, is there is there room for both? We here? got we we got to, We got to move because okay. we, we it's it's not going to happen in Olympia. <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna propose it again next year. All right, fair, okay. fair, fair. What what is passing? You know, I'm not a big strip club guy, so if you had. Asked me a while ago, should strip club patrons be sold alcohol? Would it be better for them to be buying booze? Would it make dancers feel safer? I would have said no. But a liquor license is one of many reforms some strip club dancers are asking for. Why is the state legislature, who wants to start on this, why are they apparently on their way to passing, Vivian, a so-called Strippers' Bill of Rights. Well, I think that because the strippers are coming with a really reasonable argument for why this is going to be not only just a good thing for them, but a good thing for the clubs. Because the Mm. way that the economic model currently works, if you don't sell alcohol, you are then putting the financial burden on them. These strippers are having to pay house fees. So they're actually starting their shifts at a deficit. Mm -hmm. Um, The environment, uh, or let me rephrase, because they're not making so much money, the clubs, 
uh, they are skimping out on the stuff that really needs to be there, which is like full-time security, yeah. keypads in the locker rooms, and These are all things that are on the buttons. Stripper's Bill of Rights. These are all things that are on the Stripper's Bill of Rights that are currently not mandatory in clubs. And, and all these workers are saying is, hey, we really need to change this industry and make it like the rest of the United States because Washington is an outlier and not selling alcohol. And there also sh- are studies that show that... Um, you know, when you sell alcohol, you bring in a more diverse crowd of people who aren't just looking for a sexual charge. It's it makes it more sociable and lively. And they were and probably getting drunk in their cars anyway. Before. Sure, and that's, that's a thing that happens. And when you say. have bartenders there, they can monitor how much people are mm. drinking. It just it puts more money in the environment. It adds more control. That keeps it safer, better. And you know, if anybody's going to know about this, it's going to be the dancers. Yeah, I would I would say so. And I think the root of it, Vivian, is just this whole idea of recognizing strippers as workers, right? Exactly. Because that, that's the part that's been missing for so long. And if you if you can recognize them as workers and if they need protections like any other worker out there, I think that's where all these different pieces come in. I'm going to be very interested to see how alcohol changes the situation. I'm yeah, not it's really not a, a slam dunk, no, right? It's no. not necessarily that they all get liquor licenses. No, no. And we, we got to see how this plays out. But okay. I think that's going to be, that'll be interesting to see uh, which shut down and, and which are able to thrive, et cetera. But at the root of it, I think if those extra dollars can come in, it's probably going to happen through liquor licenses. That's going to afford uh, allow these places to afford these protections you're talking about. Uh, look, I'm in agreement. First of all, I, I will just say that the, the bar on not being allowed to sell liquor at strip clubs is a weird prudish throwback. I mean, the last time, Bill, I was on a few weeks ago on, on Week in Review, we were talking about the those gay and gay yes. bar enforcement things. Right, right. And what the hell is that? Like, and why mm-hmm. is that happening is now? Is this stripper now, bill of rights going to change and, what you can wear is, at a bar? It is. Yes. It, it is. is. Yep. It, it pulls out that lewd, some of that lewd, lewd conduct, conduct language. Yeah. That all, yeah. all needs to go. Just and, on that, that, yeah. that stuff is just way out of date with our contemporary mores. Yeah. But, but the, but the, I, I agree both with, with, with Brian and Vivian on this that the the current economic model for strippers is inherently kind of exploitative right mm-hmm. because because the clubs have no revenue stream other than renting the pole essentially to the strippers right and therefore they're taking on they have to sort of pay the club to to work there yeah, it's like right? 150 bucks yeah or yeah and, right. and if they don't make that money on that shift they have to eat it right and uh, you know all the risk right. is on is on them and uh and this is a better I think way to to get to a place where okay, these lots women of agreement. Are, are, Any right, last yeah. words? I, I'll just say that it, I think that a bill like this overcomes a real social bias, which I think a, a lot of people who are campaigning for this might be told, like, "Well, just get a better job. Why can't this be a good job? Why can't this be a viable career option?" When it 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 is something that can take people out of poverty, and some people also just like it. And I think all jobs should be available to people if they want to do that. All right, legislators are as much in agreement as my panel today on Week in Review on the Strippers' Bill of Rights. Um, looks like it, the governor will sign that. And finally, before we take a break, you've gotten your presidential primary ballot. It gives you the names of presidential candidates, but you can also write in uncommitted. And uh, I saw a big, the biggest labor union in the state is behind is telling you this is the um, uh, Federation yes. of uh, Commercial Food and Commercial Workers. UFCW, saying, yeah, saying that right, yeah. yeah. So food workers. And uh, Vivian, your newspaper, The Stranger, My also did, is yes. recommending Uncommitted. You're on the Ed board, right? I am. Why yeah. would we do that? And then I think Sandeep's going to s- tell me why we shouldn't. <laughs> sure. It doesn't sound like you like this uh, to each their own. But, you know, Washington is it's going to go for Biden in the yeah. general. We all know this. Okay. Um, 
And I really think that this is a protest vote. It may seem silly to people, but I don't think it is because I think the Democratic Party really needs this realistic view of how people are viewing their actions. Um, it is an opportunity for people to send that message in a way that— What message? You know, uh, just that they need to change their policies in Gaza. They need to be aware that their vote is not guaranteed in the general election, which is true. That resonates with a lot of young people. It resonates with a lot of people who are disaffected and disappointed with this, who aren't necessarily scared about what happens if they don't vote for Biden in November. And it is a way for people to— make their voices heard, I think, in a in a proper venue. Okay. Sandeep, would Biden know that this is a Gaza protest and would he change his policy? I think Biden knows that there's a there's there's unhappiness in the Democratic base for particular constituencies, whether uh, you know, whether that's the Muslim community or younger people or people more on the sort of progressive left on on his policy on Gaza. I mean, look, I, I totally agree with Vivian. It's Washington state. It's a blue state. You know, we're going to vote for Biden in November. I don't think that's in doubt. So, you know, why shouldn't people be able to register their protests? I think my concern, though, is broader than that. When these constituencies on the particularly the the the, the left sort of. Um, applies these kinds of purity tests to a president like Biden to the point that it could, you know, not just in Washington state, but in Georgia and Arizona and Michigan and Wisconsin and, you know, the states that are Pennsylvania, the states that are going to decide the election could throw the election to Trump. That makes me very, very nervous because I think there was a very painful lesson that the left learned in 2000 with Ralph Nader, right? And going third party and voting for Ralph Nader and throwing that election from Gore to Bush. Okay. Right? We, so are you yeah. saying Washington State? Fine. Right. Do it. Do your thing. But I'm saying but, the broader but stuff. Concerned. Look, Biden is, is, I think, inarguably probably the most pro- progressive president we've ever had in the United States of America. He's the most pro-labor, uh, pro-union president we've ever had. You mm-hmm. know, I also think even on Gaza, like contrary to being a rubber stamp for Netanyahu and the right wing, he's been pushing them on um, uh, minimizing civilian casualties. Mm-hmm. He's been pushing them on a two-state solution to come out of this, a Palestinian state, right? And, and But okay. what he's also saying is that, that he doesn't oppose Israel's right to resist or defend itself, yeah. right? This is all very arguable, but I yeah. hear you saying Trump, Biden is not Trump and there shouldn't be any confusion between the he, two. Brian, do you have anything to add? Well, yeah, I was just going to say, I, I hear what you're saying, Vivian, in terms of the message that's being sent to Biden, but I just, I wonder, like Sandeep does, what do other states make of this, you know? Oh, wow. Look at those numbers there. And what does that mean here? I, and I, I hate getting into the horse race uh, metaphor that, that we're surrounded by with politics there. I just I'm concerned about that, too. Or I think about Bernie Sanders not too long ago. I mean, that that split there was something that was very damaging to the Democratic Party. Is it something that's going to be that big? I'm not sure. But I do wonder how other states react to it, I guess. Final word, Vivian. I think a lot of it gives people who may otherwise not vote an option to vote their conscience, because mm. there are a lot of people who this might not be really taking away from people who were going to vote Biden anyway and or going to vote at all. I think that that's a really important part of this. Yeah. Okay. Uh, listener, you have the ballot or you've already sent it in. So you decide. What's the deadline? The 12th of March? Oh, I believe you have it there. I, yeah, okay. I don't know off the top of my head. <laughs> I should okay, know. Okay, we uh, do. Uh, we are educated. Like, uh, right, I have right, no idea. Right. We really what, there's are. an election? Yeah, true story. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, Sandeep Kaushik there, political public affairs consultant. We've got Seattle Channel's Brian Callanan, The Stranger's Vivian McCall, KUOW's Bill Radke. We'll take a break and be back with more Week in Review.
And yes, March 12th is the uh, voting <laughs> deadline. Bill Radke here with Week in Review with The Strangers' Vivian McCall, with political and public affairs consultant Sandeep Kaushik, with Seattle Channel's Brian Callanan. Let's get through a few more uh, topics uh, that came up this week before we let you go here at the end of the show. The legislature's considering three Republican-backed voter initiatives. Supporters got the voter signatures. Now, uh, in Olympia, committees are deciding whether to just adopt any of them as laws or send them back to the ballot. That's a that's a wait and see, right? I think committees are meeting as we speak about this. They could they could. Do we think any of them are going to just be adopted? I I think it's possible. Okay, the yeah. the, the three that I think they're they're discussing now are rolling back restrictions on police pursuits of criminal suspects, the uh, so called parental rights, you know, which some of these are already protected, but right to uh, to a child's records <laughs> about ninety percent of them yeah, yeah. Being already abortion. yeah, yeah. Uh, opting out of uh, sex ed and things like that and then finally the weather to ban local income taxes okay so put a pin in that number two Puget Sound Energy is proposing some sizable increases for your electricity and natural gas bills Seattle Times reports they want to increase electric bills 17 percent over the next two years proposed 20 percent gas bill hike could cost you another $14 a month or so by the year 2026. Puget, I bring this up because Puget Sound Energy says it needs to hike rates to pay for hydroelectric dam and wind farm upgrades. Uh, the state would have to improve this, but Brian, do you think this would help Republicans make their case that the state's climate change actions are hurting the ratepayer along with the gas buyer? Sure could. I mean, this is totally pushed by the fact that the Climate Commitment Act says there are certain energy goals we need to reach by 2030 in terms of renewable energy. And I think this is definitely something, let's go Washington, is going to push to saying, hey, check out how this is costing you money. So I, I think it's definite political fodder there. Okay, we'll see. It looks like Washington will ban marriage for people under 18 years old. Backers say it will reduce domestic violence and unwanted pregnancies and improve the lives of teenagers. Right now, the minimum age is 17 in Washington and Oregon, 16 in Idaho. There's no minimum in California where the ACLU says a minimum age unnecessarily and unduly intrudes on the fundamental right of marriage. And California's Planned Parenthood says an age minimum could set a precedent that undermines minors' rights to seek abortions and other sexual health care. Vivian, you look like you want to comment. I know this is really controversial, but I just don't think that children should be getting married. Yeah, okay. yeah. I'm, I, yeah. I was barely I ready think... when I was 30. So Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Uh-huh. right. I mean, I, I, first of all, I have kids, right? I have, a, I have an 18-year-old. Um, 18 today is actually, I think, in some sense, younger than 18 mm. was 25 or 30 years ago when I when, when I was that age. And I think it's, uh, yeah, I mean, raising the age to 18 makes a lot of sense okay. to me. Okay, full like, agreement. Mm. Number, wherever I am, three, four. The effort to create a new statewide office to prosecute misuse of deadly force by police has failed in Olympia. Reform advocates say local prosecutors face inherent conflicts of interest when it comes to filing charges against police. But some prosecutors did not want to lose their authority and have to turn over cases to a statewide office. The Federal Trade Commission has sued to block the merger of Kroger and Albertsons. FTC says it would eliminate competition and lead to higher prices. The companies say they will challenge the FCC in court, the FTC in court. Brian, you brought to my attention that syphilis cases are reaching new heights nationally. Why did I do that? And locally, um, uh, 437 cases last year reported 
in King County, uh, up from 367. But uh, uh, you can have no symptoms. There might be a lot of undiagnosed uh, infections. Not my fault. I just wanted to put that out there uh, okay. first off. But uh, this is just one of those things where I, I think it's interesting because it's it's within the heterosexual community. I think it's something that a lot of health officials are keeping an eye on. And this is something I haven't heard about in years. So definitely something to keep an eye on uh, locally. Public Health Seattle King County is urging testing for pregnant women and sexually active people 45 and under who have not been tested since January 2021. A a Capitol Hill comedy club booked some comics and then were told they were, quote, right-leaning or transgressive, uh, Vivian, as you put in your story. Right-wing media accused the clubs of caving into offended activists. Should Seattle clubs bring in comics that audiences might disagree with? Well, you know, I think that's the prerogative of the club to see who they want on their own stage. I think that they would say that they made a mistake in booking these four comedians. They tried to handle it privately. Of course, that didn't happen. Uh, probably would have been best for all parties, except for maybe the four comedians who have gotten a lot of attention <laughs> on, in far-right media. Um, you know, I, I really think that comedy happens within a context, and if there is a private business that wants to have a certain kind of comedy and, you know, like they say, a progressive, safe space. Maybe that sounds stupid to some people, but uh, who cares? They can do what they want. Yeah. Okay. Any disagreement? I just, what what is safe space comedy? I, I, I'm trying I to figure out what it looks like. I think sets that maybe don't have like 30% jokes about trans people. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, it's a private. It's a, it's a private club. They can make decisions about yeah. who they right. want to book. It's not a public square, and, 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 no. and what the culture of their venue is, and where their where the their comedy boundaries are. I will say, I think more broadly, they're, we're revisiting. I think in the last year or two, where uh, I, I think we went. I think who's we? F- Seattle? We or? the we the country. We okay. the the culture. Right. The, the royal we. Um, the royal. Yeah. yeah. The 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 inclusive we. Um, I, I think where, you know, you saw backlash against people like like Dave Chappelle and stuff like that, where I thought it was really interesting that that um, uh, Saturday Night Live in 2019 had hired somebody and then fired them for some, you know, kind of kind of um, ethnic or, or race related jokes that that he had made in the past. And he was just hosting Saturday Night Live the other week. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and that to me is sort of telling that there's a rethinking about maybe we're broadly maybe. Are culturally we're more okay with some transgressive comedy or edgier mm-hmm. stuff that may not be appropriate in this Capitol Hill club right. setting, but and, yeah, and yeah. it is also worth mm-hmm. saying that uh, at least two of the comedians were linked to some pretty serious yeah. far right sources. So mm-hmm. it's not just a few insensitive jokes. There, mm-hmm. you know, are there connections to white nationalists, for example? Okay, you can read about that in the Stranger, by the way. Mm-hmm. Vivian covered that. Okay, mm-hmm. we've got a minute and a half left. So something to smile about, please. Anything that made you smile this week? I was just uh, happy as we celebrated the anniversary of the Nisqually earthquake on Mm -hmm. February 28th. I'm glad to still be alive. I was up on the 11th floor of the old city hall, rocking and rolling and listening to uh, former Mayor Paul Schell. That was a very crazy moment there, and uh, glad I'm still here. And, uh, yeah, that's what I'm smiling about. Yeah, it put a crack down my wall as well. Um, Any other? Uh, I'm glad you're here, Brian. Yeah, Yeah, thanks. High five. Uh, And In-N-Out is going to open up in Washington State. Are you a fan? I'm a fan of In-N-Out. I would say— 
I, I'm still hoping for Whataburger to expand here. Mm. You know, I'm from Texas and I really miss it. So that would be cool. If any networks, maybe Whataburger would work here as well. Both are very good places to get a burger. Long drive to Vancouver. I felt cheated because I saw that headline about in and out. I love in and out, yeah, but, it's, but it's down I in know. Vancouver. But right. it could <laughs> spread. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. um, my, my, mine is look. Uh, my, I mentioned I have a, I have a teenager, and my son uh, is decided he's going to go to Reed College, which is where I went down in Portland. Uh, <laughs> yeah, communism, atheism, free love, man. You know, like, and so yeah. it just makes me smile that he's gonna he's gonna end up going there. So fantastic! Congrats! Uh, congrats! Um, go Griffins. I, yeah. Go yes, Griffins. Yeah. We, I only have nice. time to tell you that I'm smiling because uh, all of you came on my show. It's so good to see all of you. Sandeep Kaushik, political and public affairs consultant and one-third of the Seattle Nice podcast. Brian Callanan, Seattle Channel host and producer. Vivian McCall, staff writer at The Stranger. Great show. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. And thank you to Kevin Kinestead. He produces Week in Review, and Bernard Ouellette makes it sound great, pushing the buttons, and I'll be back in another week. Please, please come join us for another Week in Review. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.